Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and sometimes folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm really glad you're here. I've only seen Bobby Norfolk perform live a couple of times, once as an MC, and a few times on videos. We've met at a couple of festivals and conferences, and he is a true gentleman. His spirit is kind, he is a very genuine man. To see him be calm and collected before going on stage, and then to burst open like a firework, is a delight to all who are there. I was humbled and very happy when Bobby agreed to this conversation, and I hope you enjoy this chat we had over Zoom during the COVID-19 epidemic as much as I did. Please welcome Bobby Norfolk. All right, so Bobby, thank you so much indeed for joining me on this call um, as we go through this COVID-19 virus thing, which is all very exciting. Um, we're living through history. That's, that's We are. Yeah, we are. It's, we are like, for the religious people, they say it's biblical proportions. It's almost like prophecy to some people. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's a very interesting time. And I also think this, this might be a time of change for us as well, like how we interact with each other. Exactly. If the longer this goes on for, I think the more of a technological impact it's going to have on us and also a social impact. Yeah. how we work with each other, treat each other, and how we socialize. You know? we'll Without see. a doubt. We'll see. It's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Living through this. So, Bobby, you have been telling stories for a long time. How did you, how, when you were growing up, was there any sign of you being a storyteller? Young Bobby Norfolk? Not at all. I stuttered, I was bashful and shy, and I stuttered basically from kindergarten to the 10th grade. Wow. So that bashfulness and the stuttering pretty much led me into what I later found out was selective mutism. Hmm. Not speaking much in public, and so people uh, did not know that I even had a voice for a long time. And I only spoke around family and good friends Wow. So do you think that storytelling helped you come out of that? Because I've seen, I've only seen you perform very little and I've seen you perform in videos and you would not think that you ever had to deal with that because you are incredibly vibrant on the stage. Thank you. I, it, it goes back to theater. This is pre-storytelling era. I go back to theater and even before that it was radio. I grew up on radio. Mom and dad had a Magnavox radio with the big tubes in the back. You turn it on and that thing would take about five minutes for the tubes to heat up. So the light was reduced in the living room. And then this orange glow 
would come across the room and all of a sudden these voices would appear out of this big, huge box. And theater of the mind is what came from that. So we would listen to the Lone Ranger, Amos and Andy, the Inner Sanctum, the Shadow. Wow. You're a young man, so you may not know about these programs. So. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, I, I, I hadn't, yes, I've, I've heard of them. I didn't think that, that you were of that era. I thought you were uh, of, a, of a more modern era. So I, this is really cool. <laughs> so I was born for, you talk about for a transparency, I was born February 25th, 1951. Oh, that's not that long ago. Yes, so in the mid-50s, radio was the thing. We didn't yeah. even get television until I was about four or five years old. Yeah, I remember we had um, the radio that I grew up with originally um, was a tube radio. And, uh, and I just, uh, the smell of it was just remarkable. I loved it. You get, the, you, know, you get the dust settling on it and then that... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're showing our rage. <laughs> <laughs> so how, so you, you got into storytelling through theatre, is that right? If I even digress even more, okay. go back to radio and one of my favourite devices was a transistor radio with the little oh. batteries. So the transistor radio was basically what I carried around when I wanted to listen to radio on the move as a kid. And then one day on AM radio, Jimmy Dean came on. Jimmy Dean's country singer, who later started making pork sausage. But Oh, that Jimmy Dean. That Jimmy <laughs> Dean, yes. But before he made pork sausage, he was a ballad singer. And he created this incredible work called Big Bad John. It was recorded and released in 1961. And I was 10 years old at the time. And it came on the radio probably 10 times a day. And I memorized it. It was all done basically as a ballad spoken word. I called him the first original rapper. <laughs> <laughs> white guy from Tennessee. But the chorus was in song, but the ballad itself was spoken word. And Big Bad John was a miner who worked in mines and he was from Louisiana and the mine crashed and imploded and he saved all these other miners lives, but he lost his life in the process. And so I memorized that thing and still recite it sometimes in concerts at festivals. Wow. That was my humble beginning into spoken word poetry and theater. Then later on, I got into theater in high school, Sumner uh -huh. High School, named after Charles Sumner, a white abolitionist from Massachusetts who was beaten with a bamboo cane on the Senate floor because he dared to disparage some of the people from South Carolina who were slaveholders. So Charles Sumner High School here in St. Louis is the first black high school west of the Mississippi River. That's cool. And that's where I learned theater. Were the storytellers in your family growing up? Mom and dad were both from Tennessee. Uh -huh. After dinner, they would both sort of top one another 
with uh, little anecdotes and puns and jokes. And my two brothers and I would just sit and be regaled by these two and their repartee across the dinner table. That's so cool. <laughs> Do you remember any of those? There were some. Um, Mom said once that this girl was so skinny she could hula hoop through a Cheerio. <laughs> then, <laughs> <laughs> That's nothing, woman. He said, why did the baby bottle of ink cry? Why? Because his father was in the pen. They had no idea how long his sentence would be. <laughs> so it's, all, it's silly things like that. And, 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 um, and so it was always interactive back and forth because they would quiz us on these things and wait for our reaction. And one That's... of the other things was Adam and Eve and Pinch Me Tight went over the river to see a fight. Adam and Eve came back from the fight. Who was left to see the fight? Of course, like a knucklehead, I would say, pinch me tight. And of course, I'd get pinched by dad. <laughs> so it's that type of thing that we were always growing up with. And so it was um, a memorable experience. Natural storytellers, they both were. So that must have been in your blood or at least in your subconscious then. It stayed there in the subconscious. And some even say that Part of the DNA was transferred. They both kind of stuttered when they got excited. Ah. I have no idea what the um, psychology behind that was or the neuroscience, but they both stuttered when they got excited. And so that passed on to me. Huh. And it stayed through theater in high school. Yeah. Who, was, who do you think was your biggest influencer when you were growing up? Growing up, it would yeah. be my 10th grade drama teacher. Yeah? Claire Lockman Boyce. She's in Atlanta, Georgia right now. But she was fresh out of, out of college, and she taught theater and drama at Sumner High School. And she put me in a few plays, and then we did a spoof on Ron and Martin's Laugh-In, which was huge. Back in the 60s. That, that and, made it over to the UK. I love that show. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Ron and Martin. And we called it Soul 69 Laugh-In. And we copied a lot of the um, sort of spoofs that they did. But it was all our original stuff. And so it was all original stuff that we created in drama class with Mrs. Boyce. And then she told me to study some relaxation techniques one day. Uh -huh. I started to find out more about relaxation and, oh, there's this group out of Liverpool called, you may have heard of them, the Beatles. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and they had gone to India and studied under the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and studied transcendental meditation. And so I didn't have the money to join a TM class. So I just went to the library and got about a dozen books on transcendental meditation. And it became a transformative experience for me. I started to study meditation. Dormant brain waves were opening up. Dormant brain cells were becoming enlivened. My intuitive faculty was increased. And all of a sudden, I started feeling energy that I had not felt before. And this dy dynamism from meditation, it lowered my blood pressure, 
it lowered the heart rate and the stuttering disappeared. Nice. So was this transcendental meditation, was it really, really, I mean, I, you know, I came along later than you and I knew about it, but was it really, really big over here? It, it was huge. Yeah. Especially on the East and the West coast, not so much in the Midwest where we're landlocked, Yeah. but you know, how pop culture right. transforms from the East and West coast and across the big pond. Yeah. And it became something that people in theater embraced. Do you think theater is more um, open to things like that? To, to the experimentation of different thought processes and, and um, ideas? I think so. There are a couple of books that was introduced to me about 25 years ago, and both by Viola Spolin. And one is called Improvisation for the Theater, and the other is Theater Games for the Classroom. And Viola Spolin was a director of theater in New York. And legend has it her son, Paul, was one of the people who helped create Saturday Night Live on NBC. Oh. So some of the things that Mrs. Spolin taught in those two books was about relaxation techniques. She didn't necessarily call it TM, but it was all about relaxation, which we now call mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's the same game with another name. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> they like to rebrand things and reinvent, yeah. right? <clears throat> Make people think that this is our invention. <laughs> people have been doing it for 3,000 years, but whatever. Yeah, right. Do you like those epics from, from, from India? Have you read them? Some of them I have. Yeah? Which ones have you read? Well, actually, I, I became... I became a follower of Deepak Chopra and his ah. teachings. Yes, and so I know the man is an Indian mystic. And so I have about a dozen of his books and some of the things that he has studied in mysticism and in Hinduism, he created books and audio. I'm a slow reader, but a very fast listener. So oh, wow. I like by first I was buying his works on cassette and then on CD and then went from that to digital. Yeah. He became my unofficial guru. That's really cool. But I think we all have some of those, don't we? Yeah, we do. We definitely do. <laughs> what events led you to tell stories? Move out of theatre and just tell stories? I tell people I didn't seek storytelling. It sought me. Because when I graduated from high school, I went to college. I went to junior college first in St. Louis. And then I won a fellowship with the Danforth Foundation. And that was a four-year fellowship to go to school at University of Missouri-St. Louis. And so I studied. My favorites was psychology, sociology, uh, philosophy, and history. Wow. But I honed into history because the other things they wanted stats, and I just wanted to um, basically learn the basics of those other um, art forms and those academics types of things. But I had no idea what path I was being led toward. I was just using my intuitions. 
being led by what I later found out was the, the master within, the intuitive faculty of the mind. Yeah. That part of the brain that alerts you of opportunity to grasp, alerts you of danger to avoid. <laughs> and so... Ninja's <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> And so following the intuitive faculty, I was then introduced to the National Park Service, the oh. Gateway Arch, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. I don't know if you've ever visited St. Louis in the Arch. I, I have not, but I have heard of it and I've seen pictures. It's pretty amazing. It is 630 feet tall and it's made out of stainless steel and concrete. There is a massive museum underneath, 60 feet beneath the Mississippi River. And I became a National Park Service Ranger there in September of 1976. Thus, I had a real job after college, and I was using my historical background to teach history. But then, to digress more, I was in stand-up comedy during the same time. So my unofficial mentors then was Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Richard Pryor being a very physical comedian, George Carlin being a master of words. Yeah. And I combined those two to do nightclub comedy. So whenever I was being a park ranger, I would take those elements of theater and comedy and put it into historical programs. Wow. It became sort of almost like a cottage industry where teachers were asking for me to do tours when they came on field trips to the arch. And then lo and behold, I started working with the St. Louis Black Repertory Theater. And I was in about eight plays with the Black Repertory Theater of St. Louis. And so whenever the theater was dark, then I would go into the nightclubs. And then my real job was the nine to five with the National Park Service. So. You were no. busy. Holy I was, cow. I had no time to sleep. <laughs> I was just wondering about that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why I meditated so much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you need to, right? Holy mackerel. So, so the, you're working for the park services and you, you're incorporating what essentially was your stand-up comedy and your theatre background and people liked what they saw and heard and you were being requested. Did this and then let me even add more yeah, yeah. or uh, more wood to the fire. The St. Louis Storytelling Festival began in 1981. And so Ron Turner, who worked for the University of Missouri campus in Columbia, Missouri, and Lynn Rubright, who is considered the godmother of storytelling in St. Louis, wanted to have a festival in St. Louis based on the Jonesboro, Tennessee model. And they said, okay, let's start it in 1981. What, we need a venue, the venue, the Gateway Arch. So some of the best storytellers in America came to the Gateway Arch Museum for that first festival in St. Louis. And my mind was blown. Yeah. Here I'm thinking that storytelling was something to put babies down for the night, the picture book. Once upon a time, and then daddy loves you, smooches, night night. <laughs> here is your people like Jill Callahan and Donald Davis and um, Connie Reagan Blake and Barbara Freeman, uh, David Holt, Ken Fight, 
these people were masters even then. And then there's the legendary Jackie Torrance, who became my personal mentor. They all came to St. Louis. So I asked the chief ranger if I could take off on Monday and Tuesday and work in the schools in St. Louis and then work for the Park Service Wednesday through Sunday. He said, go for it. So I had a, a quadruple career now. <laughs> but you took two days off to make it a quadruple. <laughs> yeah, I, had to, <laughs> I had to have that uh, 48 hours so I could work <laughs> in the other sites, but the weekends were all mine too, so I could work in nightclubs still. Wow. But, Big name acts came through St. Louis, so I got to open for Lou Rawls, B.B. King, Roberta Flack, People oh. Right, Ahmed Jamal, Gil Scott Heron. Oh, the wow. So all these big name acts would come in. And so I thought, this is, I'm going into stand up comedy. But what I found out, Simon, was that the educational component was missing in nightclub comedy. Yeah. And being an educator or teaching artist, I wanted to teach the art form and not just have people just laugh and have a three drink minimum so they could stay in the nightclub. Yeah. And so I became dissuaded from being in nightclubs and more um, in, involved with storytelling in schools, K through 12. That's so cool. So going back to these, these people that you were working with in the, night, in the nightclubs, um, did you get to hang out with them as it were and, and talk to them and and get little bites of wisdom from them i did tidbits as a matter of fact yeah bb uh, king was having uh, a break with his band we were in the green room and they ordered a big huge um bucket of kentucky fried chicken <laughs> and all the fixings and i was just staring at his guitar lucille in the corner and B.B. King looked at me and he said, young man, you better have some of this fried chicken. I said, no, sir, I'm vegetarian. They go, oh, this is the cure for that. So <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm good, I'm good, B.B. So it's that in Roberta Flack, I asked if I could take a picture with her in the green room and she snatched me in her lap. And I was in this white tux. She said, as good as you look, you can take a picture in my lap. I thought she was kidding. And then she snatched me and there I was. And of course the photographer, oh, he was just cackling and shooting photographs of it. So I, I do have a picture of that. Could you send that to me? I would love <laughs> to see that. Okay, and, I, and if you do send it to me, can I put it up on the website to go with the podcast? Because I think yes, sir. I'd love to see yes, that. Sir. That is so cool. I am so jealous. <laughs> but there's some of these people I was just too in awe to even talk to. Yeah. Like when I got to meet Maya Angelou, I became tongue-tied. And I actually met her when I was performing in Ghana, West Africa. Oh, really? In Accra. Yes, this is summer of 93. And I was performing there and the tour guide said we have a surprise guest so we went to the w.e.b du bois home in accra ghana and there she was in the house and we stood in the courtyard of w.e.b du bois's home and she walked out and everybody they had a collective gasp yeah i bet 
Oh my gosh. And so during the, 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 the chatting time, I just couldn't speak. <laughs> I did, <laughs> but I didn't perform in front of her. So this was a, two other times that I performed. But, and so it's those times of uh, kinds of things that um, I see as transformative moments in my career. Yeah, I bet. Wow. You lucky, lucky guy. <laughs> <laughs> so was, would you say that, that was one of your most unexpected things that have happened in your life? That would be one. That would be a biggie. Yeah, I bet. I bet. What other unexpected things have, have happened to you in your career as a storyteller? Jim May from Illinois. Mm -hmm. He had a storytelling festival for many years. And he invited me to his storytelling festival in McHenry County. And I did Wiley and the Hairy Man. Mm story of this big Sasquatch type monster who chases this young kid through the forest and his mama teaches him he has to trick the hairy man three times so the hairy man won't eat him up and I told this story and the audience loved it and afterwards we were in a transition period going to another tent and this woman comes up with a two-year-old baby girl and the mother is saying Mr. Norfolk, I just want to thank you for teaching my child her first words. I had never heard her speak until you did Wiley and the Hairy Man. She was mouthing and mimicking what you were saying on stage. And, right. and I was crying, and then I'm starting to tear up. And <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's a that's, that, that can be quite a deep, dark story. I mean, it's a, it's a fun story. I love it, but... There are some scary elements in there too. So that's the way you know. I come from a stand-up comedy background, yeah. so I put a, I call those types of stories that I do spine tinglers, spine ticklers. Oh, Give I the like audience that. time to be afraid, only for a second. Like the jump stories. Um, the jump story is when yes. you lure the audience into a certain place in their mind, and then it's explosion on the mic. And so it makes them laugh. And so I put all these comical elements into my jump stories like Wally and the Hairy Man. So it's, it's more rollicking humor with some jumps that make you laugh. And so yeah. I performed that story throughout grade schools. And it became a signature piece in my grade school repertoire. I love that. That's so cool. So could you give me an example of one of those humorous elements in Wiley and the Hairy Man? Well, when Wiley is being chased by the Hairy Man, oh, before that, when Wiley is chopping down a tree, his daddy is a woodcutter, lumberjack. Uh -huh. And so Wiley is chopping down a tree. And so I come in with these onomatopoeias as the tree is being chopped, chick-a-boom. Chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, boom, boom. And after about a minute of that, the audience chimes in. And so there are three times, it's the magic of three. We can get to that later yeah. about the power yeah. of three in story. And so once that starts, then there's that whole cadence with the audience and chicka boom. But when Wiley is confronted by the hairy man, he sees a shadow on the ground. And then the shadow becomes bigger and bigger. 
and I don't want to do this on the podcast, but there's an explosion in the mic. And it <laughs> levitates. They do. <laughs> and, and so while it climbs up a tree like a squirrel. And so when Wally's being chased through the forest, there's another onomatopoeia that I borrowed from Jackie Torrance, my mentor. And that's boogity, 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 boogity. And that's just to show the movement and to enliven it with the, the words of somebody yeah. running at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and the hairy man was right behind him. Come back here, Wally. <laughs> nice. So, all those elements come together. And it's a 12-minute story when I put it together. If it's, if it's 12, told with 12, 12 minutes. minutes. Yeah, okay. yeah. And if it's told without those other elements, it basically ends up being um, about five minutes story. <laughs> wow. When I tell it, it's close to 15. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I stretch I stretch that baby out. It's I, I love that story. But you, you put the darker elements in your rendition? Yeah, I mean, I make it fun as well. Okay. You know, so when Wiley's up in the tree and the hairy man's down there, there's, there's a, the whole visual aspect of Wiley looking up and then the hairy man looking down, looking up, looking down, looking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so there's, there's that element to it. You know, I do put a lot of humor in my stories as well. Do you... So the stand-up comedy had a lot of influence on you for putting humor in. Um, I personally believe that humor is, is needed in, in even the darkest stories to like ease them up and to give the audience a sense of safety. And I assume that you feel the same way. I do. And I think that is very necessary for me. I made the gross error one time of doing Edgar Allan Poe in front of a high school and I did the Telltale Heart and then I followed that with W.W. Jacobs, The Monkey's Paw. And I just, <laughs> oh, there's no room for humor in either one of those pieces, as you well know. Oh. And the audience was shocked into silence. I mean, it was like 500 high school students. Oh, and they just gosh. stared at me like, oh my goodness, it was surreal. And I wasn't oh. used to that non-response. Oh, I bet. I said, okay, I'm taking those out of my repertoire. I said, I don't like this. It invaded these kids' minds with all of these dark elements from Jacobs and Poe. Yeah. One of my first, one of the first horror stories I was told um, as a kid was uh, The Monkey's Paw. Yeah. One of my teachers read it in class, and it was, you know, blew me away and then I saw a cartoon of the Telltale Heart read by James Mason mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved it and that's kind of what got me into the whole you know I, was, I don't know how old I was when I heard Monkey's Poor I was probably I don't know 11 or 12 and I was probably maybe 13 when I saw the Telltale Heart maybe mm -hmm. maybe even younger I don't know um, but yeah those are those are dark stories I, I black cat. I I was doing a Halloween story, a uh, Halloween event for adults, and they wanted a, an Edgar Allan Poe story, so I learned the black cat. <laughs> um, I was so nervous about it. I made the 
biggest mistake ever by opening with that story. Oh my goodness. And five adults got up and walked out because they didn't know who I was. They didn't know where I was coming from, even though it was introduced as an Edgar Allan Poe story. Yes. I told it in the first person. Oh my goodness. And I went deep with it and I lost five of my audience members and I had to I got in touch with the organizers and asked if they knew who these people were. And I asked them to share my contact information because I'd like to apologize for what for what I'd obviously triggered in them. It was um that was a learning experience. Oh my goodness, yes. Worshipper. <laughs> I know, right? I know. And I'm not that I'm not that kind of guy. I'm just, I mean, I have a I do have a dark side, but I mean I'm not the kind of guy. Walk out. I know, I know, it's terrible. So why do you choose to tell folk and fairy tales? What's, what's the magic thing about them for you? From the research that I have done, and that research has led me into the um, studies of Carl Gustav Jung. Mm-hmm. And I have been studying Carl Jung's work on archetypes for 30 years or more. And I found out that what he taught is that the archetypes are basically things that are embedded in our unconscious or subconscious mind. The hero, the the demon, the witch, the wizard, the dragon, the ogre, the giant, god, devil, all these are archetypes embedded in our unconscious and they're part of our DNA. And it's all embedded in fairy tales. And so I started to then research, where is this coming from? And then somebody told me to read Bruno Bettelheim's The Uses of Enchantment, and then Joseph Campbell's book on the hero with a thousand faces. And so I started to look at what fairy tales were actually intended for. They were intended for the adults first, to teach moral ethical lessons to the children as cautionary tales, and then pass the lesson on to the young and so the storyteller before technology came along would be in front of a fire and then the people would come out to hear the storyteller and this is worldwide this is globally yeah. not just any particular part of the planet but the backdrop would be a cliff wall or a grove of trees and so the fire would create silhouettes as the storyteller began to tell, the silhouettes would create caricatures of all of these archetypes. And so the mind would go into this other place, this other dimension. And all of a sudden, the fire brings you closer into the vortex of story. And then storytelling hypnosis is the result. And this is how fairy tales became so powerful. Do you think there's some sort of... Um form of meditation that occurs when you're telling folk and fairy tales for the audience? Definitely. I call it story hypnosis, as Uh some of the storytellers or neuroscientists have done, because once the story is being told and people are caught into the vortex of the plot, the eyes widen, the jaw drops, people lean forward in their chairs, and the only thing that can break that spell loud noise in the back of the room or someone walking between teller and listener 
And this is one of the reasons why it is sacrilegious to have cell phones going off in theaters or in storytelling performances because you break the magic. Yeah. Yeah, I like what, um, I think it's, I can't remember if it's Bill Lepper and the Irwin, who if they, if they hear a phone going off, they jump into the audience to take the phone and answer it. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it scares people so much they hide their phones, making sure that they're very much off. <laughs> much off. Uh, yeah. Dame Judy Dench was in theaters. I think I heard this on Inside the Actors Studio that used to come on television. Uh, that the actor, I mean, the uh, host just died, as a matter of fact, Inside the Actors Studio. Um, it was broadcast out of New York. Okay, yeah. His name in a minute. But Dame Judy Dench was in theater on Broadway in the middle of her one woman show, and the phone went off. And she went into a steel pose, she went into a freeze, and the phone kept ringing and ringing. And she came out of the freeze. She said, Well, answer the damn thing. <laughs> so the guy he went out on all fours up the aisle. <laughs> breaking the magic yeah not let people into a theater while an act is going on you wait for the blackout or intermission right and that's all part of the magic of storytelling and theater is inter intertwined it's true it's true that's the answer to the fairy tale so it goes back to the fairy tale answer okay so so do you think <clears throat> There's obviously a relationship between theater and, and fairy tales, but there is, a, there is a difference. There is marked difference. Um, just the way that one performs theater is a whole different mindset. I, being a physical performer and being a storyteller who is not stuck on, it has to be very rigid. I try not to be anal when I'm telling my stories, to be freeform. That's why I love improvisation so much. Because in theater, all of my directors said that if you're bouncing a ball in the middle of a scene and you miss one of the catch and the ball bounces into the first row, it has gone into oblivion. It is now in the abyss. You don't not ask somebody in the first row, could you hand it to me, please? <laughs> <laughs> Just pretend you're bouncing an imaginary ball. But with storytelling, it's here and now. You're in yeah. the moment. And you can ask for the ball back. You can ask for the ball Hand me that ball back. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give it to your child. It's mine. <laughs> or I'll buy my CDs on the way out. <laughs> One of the questions that I really like to ask is your, your, about your creative process, about how, how you discover a story, know that it's the right story to tell, and then how you go about working that story into something that you then perform, share with an audience. Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, people ask me how I perform. Do I look in a mirror? Do I perform out loud? And I say collectively, no, I don't perform out loud, it's all internal. 
I just listen to my own voice inside of my head to form the story. Then I visualize every element, every scene of the story through visualization. If I'm driving a car, if I'm taking a walk, if I'm riding my bicycle, I'm internalizing the story verbally and mentally. And then the actual performance is when I go on the mic on stage. And so it all pours out just the way I visualized. And I tell people I can't actually teach that in a workshop. It's just something that I have uh, inculcated as my own private process. Do you know of any other storyteller that does anything like that? Don't know one. No. I, I, yeah, I, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. It's an alien concept to other storytellers. You are from another planet. <laughs> That's amazing. So the first time that it comes out of your mouth is when you're in front of an audience. Yes. Wow. And that doesn't scare the heck out of you? <laughs> no, it's very, it's comforting. Uh, Sherry, no, she has no idea. She said, why, why don't you perform it in front of me? I said, no, I don't want to. I said, this is just something that I need to do for myself. But she performs stories in front of me all the time. Yeah. Just physical, you know, the, the verbalizing of it. And I sit there, I'm a very captive audience when she wants to rehearse in front of me. But when I want to rehearse to myself, it's just three people, me, myself, and I. So one person does spring to mind, but it's not a storyteller. It's an athlete, and uh, Jim Thorpe. Oh, oh. I heard, because we went, to, I, my family and I, we visited Jim Thorpe on Mont Chunk in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And we, we were doing a tour, um, and I can't remember where it was in the town, but they were talking about, about Jim Thorpe. And apparently when they were going to the Olympics, all the other athletes on the Olympic team were practicing and, you know, doing all the things that an athlete does before a, a big event. Yes. But Jim Thorpe was not. He was just sitting in a deck chair enjoying the sun. And they said, why aren't you practicing? Why aren't you working out? And he says, I am. <laughs> I'm visualizing what I will do on the track and how I will pass everyone. And so it, it seems that you and Jim Thorpe have a, a similar technique. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Now he was um, native indigenous performer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Runner. I remember that from high school, but not his process, but his. Yeah. That's, that's what I, that's what I was taught because it blew me away. I mean, I'm a big believer in, um, positive affirmations and, and visualizing success and all that kind of stuff. But to actually just sit there and not practice. <laughs> I am. You must have been super fit, you know, because I mean, you can't, you can't do that and not be fit. You know, you can't win races and not be fit. But um, you see, know. The, the, you and he have a, have a similar technique. I, I hope that you don't end in the same way that he did, which was in poverty. Oh my goodness. No, I'm yeah, trying which to is, avoid that at all costs. I know, right? I know. Um, but I will look that up, learn to Google that, because it sounds like a kindred soul to me. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were telling me that. I got all excited. <laughs> so, yeah, my process is something I could never teach in a workshop. 
it's to me something that I have um, created for myself. And that is something that if nobody else knows the concept, it's like trying to tell somebody how you enjoy the sunset. Yeah. You have to experience it. Yeah. I might have to try that technique, although I'm not sure if I've got the courage <laughs> to follow it all the way through to getting up on a stage and, and having not even voiced it myself. That's that's at least start with a very small audience. Yes, I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> and a short story. <laughs> not True. a twenty minute saga or something like that. So what what does a story have to have for you, for you to be able to like say that's the right story for me? What what what, what makes a story click in your mind? Other than beginning, middle, and end, mm -hmm. the story to me has to resonate. There are some stories that don't resonate with me, and so I just have to just retire them. One of the stories was Who's in Rabbit's House? A story that I read from Werner Ardema, the author. And Who's in Rabbit's House won a Caldecott award for best children's book and fabulous book that uh, librarians would rave about and do it story times and i tried that thing about five or six times and it just didn't work for me so i just retired it hmm. so this <clears throat> i love the trickster stories though I'm I, I, yeah. my favorite trickster story so those are the stories that radiate toward me and fractured fairy tales you do like fractured fairy tales. Oh, I love them. What's the uh, what's the uh, the thing about those that you like? What makes those hum for you? I can freestyle them. I can take them and use them like silly putty, and mold uh -huh. them, shape them, and put them in a new form, but keep the basic elements the same. <clears throat> so if I'm doing three pigs, three bears, literate Riding Hood. I fracture them, but they all still remain in their basic format, beginning, middle, end. But I put so much humor into them. And sometimes if I'm in the moment and uh, something humorous comes to mind, I just throw it out there. If yeah. the audience likes it, I keep it. If they don't like it, I lose it. And so that's how I, I love the fairy tales, just to freestyle with them. So this is your improv then. It's this is how improv jumps yeah, in. Yeah, big time. I like that. That's really cool. <laughs> I can see more of your stuff. I really do. <laughs> so what, what lights up your eyes when you're, when you're working with stories? To see the awe in children's faces. Uh, that's probably the reason I got out of stand-up comedy. Because these people were in nightclubs and dim lit rooms and drinking alcohol and... I enjoyed the laughter, which is the elixir of life to me. And mm -hmm. so then I started doing research on what is laughter all about? And I found out this guy, Norman Cousins, had cancer. And so he started getting all these videos of Lauren, Lauren Hardy and the Three Stooges and, and, and um, Abbott and Costello. And he cured his disease through laughter. Wow. And through further research, I found that if you frown and are angry, there is a poison that is released into the bloodstream. Really? Yeah, when you're evil and angry and always biting at people, there's 
a poison that's released in the bloodstream that creates a disease. If you laugh, it creates endorphins. Yeah. The endorphins, it's like a natural high. Yeah, it is. It's a dopamine effect when you laugh. And so that's what I found out was, that's what the mystics were talking about, that laughter is the elixir of life. Yeah. And that's, that's a high that we can come off. <clears throat> exactly. It's much fun as the audience. Exactly. Because we feed yeah. off of that. We do. And the storyteller needs that. And so 99.9% .9 of all the storytellers that I know do not want the audience in darkened rooms. We want to see our audience. Right. That's so we can interact. Yeah. It's fun to lower the lights a little bit. But you want yeah. their faces. See the faces, you know. And so there's that the difference between performing in a gym, in a theater, and a high school. If I'm at a high school in a gym, the lights are, it's, it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, the, if the high school has a theater, then I ask for a general, uh, I say, just give me a general wash over the audience, but don't make the audience disappear. Yeah. It's an atmosphere. Bring the house lights down just a bit, create an atmosphere. It works so much better. It does. I agree. Yeah. And a gym is a gym is a gym. <laughs> yeah. You get what you get. You do. Don't get upset. <laughs> Co and all. <laughs> it's, yeah. Oh, geez. That's, that's what drives me nuts about gymnasiums is the, uh, is the, the echo and, and oh. Houston. And I tell these administrators, get some cork. Go to Home Depot and get, invest in some cork panels. Yeah. Now, if you want to have assemblies in your gym, get cork panels and mount them on the wall. It shuts down the echo and it works yeah. every time. Yeah, I was, at this, I was at this one venue, which shall remain nameless, and uh, they had the, the architect to design this meeting room. It was a, a circular room kind of like a turret um, with a fairly high ceiling. It was probably a 20 foot ceiling with glass at the top. And there were three corridors that led off of it. <laughs> and I went and performed there and there were, it was all sorts of events going on in different classrooms. And so there was noise coming from one of these three <laughs> rushing down to that circular sound chamber and echoing about and I, 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 it got to the point where I had a PA set up and it was just becoming a competition like to see how much I could turn it up without the speaker blowing. So it was ridiculous. I mean, I didn't do that, but it was, it was a ridiculous. Some architects have deluded educators to think that that was something that is needed in a 20th century classroom. It's called it the open, the open classroom. Yeah. Effect where you could hear other teachers and students. And I said, that's insane. Yeah, why would you want that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that drives me bonkers. But anyway, how did you find your voice, your style? Where did it come from? Was there a pivotal moment that, that you suddenly realized, this is what I need to do and this is how I'm gonna do it? Well, I think that would be in 1981. No, excuse me, 88, 1988. And I did my first storytelling concert out of St. Louis in Chicago, Illinois. 
and it was actually in the North Shore of Chicago in Evanston. And the person who had um, put on this event was Sid Lieberman. Okay. The late Sid Lieberman. Yeah. And Jim May, who I mentioned earlier, was on the performance repertoire, I mean, platform, along with, um, who else was that? Jackie Torrance and Jill Callahan, Beth Horner. And we performed, and Jackie Torrance saw my work, and she invited me to dinner, and she told me that I reminded her so much of her grandfather, her uncle, back in North Carolina. I mean, the woman was at the top of her game in 1988, and she introduced me to her record producer, to her agent, and I started having my stories being produced by Earwig Music in Chicago, being toured by um, John Ullman, who was then in Portland, Oregon, uh -huh. traditional arts services. And Jackie would constantly mentor me and to ask people to hire me. So people were calling me, hiring me, sight unseen. Said, Jackie Torrance said that we should hire you. And I said, okay, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I found my voice. So it was her. So I am standing on her shoulders solidly. Yeah, you are. That's so neat. That's so neat. And I was in the tent, in the library tent, when she did her last performance in Jonesboro. And she had gone on a respirator. She was uh, grossly obese at the time and her respiratory system was failing. And so Diane Ferlat, one of the storytellers in Oakland, California, she got together with some other people. They rented a special van to take Jackie Torrance's electronic wheelchair and put it on the van. They drove her from Salisbury, North Carolina to Jonesboro to perform. And they had a special ramp to pull her on that stage. And she regaled the audience for 45 minutes to an hour. And she had not lost a beat. She had been off the circuit for about two or three years. Wow. And people were in awe, gave her a standing ovation afterwards. Since about a month after that, she passed away. Mm. That was a huge loss to our community. <clears throat> incredible loss. Yeah. If you could meet a storyteller, living or dead, and spend some time with them, who, who do you think that would be? I had heard so much about Ken Fight. He's um, passed on now. I think he passed away even before I got involved in storytelling, but I kept hearing about his work. Ken Fight, Ken Fight, you know, and, and it's legendary. And I said, oh my goodness, I wish I had seen him, but I did get to perform for, with um, Gamble Rogers. Oh. Gamble Rogers, as a matter of fact, he became a ballad singer. And for a while he was touring in Florida with a guy named Jimmy Buffett. No, I know yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know of him, I don't know him, but I know of him, yes. <laughs> uh, who doesn't, John but Gamble Rogers was an incredible 
ballad singer. He reminded me so much of Jimmy Dean. And so Gamba Rogers would be in Jonesboro performing and I would share the stage with him. And one day National Public Radio came to, and they were going to, um, it was the Railroad 10 at the time, to a live video and audio taping. And Gamba Rogers was having some trouble with his hands. It was a cold October day and his arthritis had kicked in. And he plays guitar. <clears throat> and he didn't think he could play his guitar and hit the right chords. And I said, just massage those hands, Gamble. And I said, you know, the adrenaline will kick in as soon as you hit that stage and they call your name. He said, all right, Bobby, thanks. And he followed that suggestion and he did it. He just blew the audience away. Nice. So incredible work. So I wish I could just sit down with him again. Um, the man drowned in a beach on, in Florida. Someone was drowning and Gamble Rogers was on the beach and heard the guy crying for help. And Gamble knew he had arthritis and he ran into the water to save the guy. And so both of them perished in the water. Wow. That's crazy. <clears throat> I know, I know. And so it was one of the last performances that Gamble had done in Jonesboro. And usually after the gigs are over, and you know this, having performed in Jonesboro, after the four o'clock oleos are over, everybody starts to party and go to different types of social engagements yeah. to drink and to let your adrenaline down and yeah and gamble did not want to go to any of the parties he just wanted to go back to his room huh. so I, his angels were telling him it's time to sort of separate yourself from the physical world wow so he's one he and ken fight yeah can fight wow i do i Never seen their work. I haven't found any of their work. I'll have to have to dig around and see if I can find some of it online. Do you, Please do. Do you, do you still have some of those vinyl records that were that were made? <laughs> with Jackie, I have I have vinyl records, forty fives and thirty three and a thirds that I keep in my storage downstairs. I call it my burrow, the burrow. Yeah. And I have about 250 vinyl albums. Some are by, yeah, some are jazz, R&B, pop, and storytelling. No, I was talking about the ones that you recorded. Oh, that I recorded myself? Yeah. I, well, I have cassettes. Oh, so you, you, never, did, you never did the vinyl route? <laughs> I was into this new art form called cassettes. There you go. <laughs> it's a new genre of technology. Yeah. And then the cassettes then gave way to CDs. And right, right, right. You know the history, but no vinyl. Ah, oh, see, I would, sorry. I have Jackie Torrance's vinyl albums. I've got one of Diane uh, Walkstein's. Oh, yes. I, I do. And, and I, I, I have a turntable set up so I can listen to it. Is that right? Yeah. I had to perform with her in New York one time. Yeah. At the uh, statue of Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah. Yeah. 
this is what the, this is the performance it was i think it was recorded at or it was recorded for that because there's oh, a yeah, statue yeah. there and everything i have to put it on later and see if it's a live recording or not it's been a while since i've listened to it but yeah when i saw it i'm like I'm, i've got to be the only storyteller alive that still has a final <laughs> turntable but maybe not maybe you and i are the only two that have that i had sherry buy me one three years ago a turntable yeah i could actually play my records every now and, and then. i never got rid of mine i kept it and then when it, kept it. yeah and when it broke i brought it well did i bring it over with me i couldn't i brought my speakers with me when i came over to the us um but i had a turntable and when it broke uh we were we went past this yard sale and they had a, a, a sony turntable and i mm -hmm. bought it for like five pounds because you know cds were starting to take off and i still use it i still got it <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. What's the most rewarding work that you think you've ever done? It gave you the most pride or, or shook your tree enough to like get you excited? What was the most exciting, most pleasurable work you've done? I would think that was working with the special school district children in St. Louis County. Yeah. And the first time I performed with the special school district children who are have special needs, they I mean they were they they ran the gamut of physical and mental disability, and they brought about a hundred of these children to me, and so I just 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 acting my heart I was just sweating. I mean, it looked like I had gone swimming, <laughs> <laughs> so damp from perspiration. And they moaned and groaned and wailed, and I thought, oh, they don't like me, so I worked harder. And so afterwards, I was going to apologize to the staff. They, they loved you. What are you talking about? They say those sounds were them showing their adulation. That's great. <laughs> and so I, from that point on, when I got invited to special school districts, I knew they were enjoying the performance when they made the vocal sounds, the glottal sounds. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling, isn't it? It is incredible. Yeah. I, I did... Um... I did a number of work, a number of gigs for a place in Woodstock in Vermont called Zach's Place. Yeah, yeah. And Zach was this this young guy who uh, had cerebral palsy. And the first time I I told stories there, I included a jump story, and he leapt. I mean, he he was seriously affected by cerebral palsy, and he leapt in his chair. And I thought, oh my god, I'm going to kill him. You know, I was like, like everything. I was just like so scared that something terrible had happened but it was like no and his dad was there because he's he's the guy that made the place and he was like no he loved it he loved it so I, it, it, it's yeah. it's magic isn't it you know yeah yeah hogwarts has nothing on what we do yeah it is it's, it's true it's true how did you and sherry meet i was i had already made my reputation as a storyteller and uh -huh. so i was invited to Atlanta, Georgia. My first job in Atlanta, Georgia was Winter Tales. And so I flew into Atlanta and I performed at the Calumwell Arts Center, which was owned by Coca-Cola Bottling Company. And Sherry, I had no idea who she was. She was a librarian at the time. She was a librarian in Miami, Florida, and then moved to Atlanta to become a library administrator. But she told stories her entire career. 
after graduating from Indiana University with a library science degree and storytelling was her passion. And she came up to me and said that every story I told was in her repertoire. I had no idea. I no said, way. I said, wow, thank you. But I was being hired for another gig at the time because they had sold out the afternoon performance. And there were like another 300 people who wanted to see my work. Wow. And they asked me if I could, if I had the energy to do an evening performance. And I said, yes. And so I had to cut the conversation with Sherry short. And I don't know if she felt rebuffed about that or not, but I was so distracted that I couldn't focus on what she was saying to me. And so later on, we were at a storytelling festival about two years later uh -huh. in South Carolina, a storytelling festival called Stone Soup. Yeah. Based on the folktale. And I'm in the, um, the home of the, the, the people who are organizing the event. Sherry comes rolling in after a heavy rain and I had no idea who she was. She knew who I, who I was. And so I looked across the room and she was toweling off. I said, Ooh, who is that? So, <laughs> so we struck up a conversation that I was trying, I was being quite the gentleman. And so we both went into the kitchen for dessert afterwards. And there was a coconut cake for dessert. There was only one slice left. And she looked at me and I looked at her. We looked at the one slice of coconut cake and said, we'll share. So we shared the same piece of coconut cake. Now, how romantic is that? Oh, it's so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> I love that story. That's we a good pen one. Pals. We became pen pals and she hired me to come to Atlanta to work at her library. So that was your I, second date. Second, yes. <laughs> I didn't know the woman had ulterior motives about inviting me. I thought I was just coming to work. <laughs> She's a sly one, that Sherry, apparently. <laughs> Sneaky lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I like that. That's so fun. So I've, I'll ask you one last question. Yes, sir. And that is, well, it's a two-part question, three-part question. What is your favorite breakfast? Where would you like to eat it? Your favorite place to eat it and who would that person be? I think I have a, a, an idea of who that person might be. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> let me say this about that first. For about 25 years, I've only eaten one meal a day and that was dinner. Yes, I wow. said it, one meal a day for three decades. And again, I don't want to teach this to anyone in a workshop, I don't want to kill anybody because everybody's dietary needs are different. But I started to perform after eating three meals a day and always would get indigestion, heartburn. So I just skip breakfast. If I'm performing in the day, I skip lunch and I would eat this big, huge vegetarian meal in the evening. And if I'm during a time when I'm not performing and I'm out with family and I'm visiting Sherry's family in Richmond, Virginia, you know, one of the favorite meals that we would have, and I would always have to partake of that, which would be um, <clears throat> biscuits and apple butter and hash brown potatoes. Mm, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. 
At any time of day. <laughs> any time of day for that, yeah. And it, it would be with Sherry and her family. She has a twin brother, Terry. She has, she has a twin brother? Yes, Terry oh, is a twin brother. Yes. He's professor of music at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he is incredible, um, comp uh, not a composer, but a conductor of music. Does he write music at all, or does he? He doesn't write. He, he he conducts music, and has won several awards. He's performed at Carnegie Hall, wow, several times, and he travels the world, conducting and teaching music workshops. That's and he is also a master chef. Oh, really? Yes. So his biscuits and his apple <laughs> butter is the best. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget the hash browns and the hash browns yeah we made some good hash browns the other day they were really good <laughs> uh, well bobby i really appreciate the time that you spent with me today i really appreciate it a lot um it's always a pleasure chit-chatting with you when we've bumped into each other yes sir pleasure's mine no it's mine <laughs> <laughs> like when Irishman told me I was performing with Liz Weir in Derry, Northern Ireland, and one guy said, the top of the morning to you, the balance to me. So I said, oh, I like that. I've not heard that before. I like that a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, mate. I hope to see you on the road. And uh, when we do see each other on the road, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, sir. Maybe we can actually shake hands and hug at that time. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, even, even if it's with a mask and vinyl gloves. <laughs> Take care, mate. All the best. Say hi to Sherry for me. Michelle, peace. If you want to know more about Bobby and his, quite frankly, amazing life, then I would highly recommend his autobiography, An Eye to the Sky, Storytelling on the Edge of Magic, published by Parkhurst Brothers. Bobby also wrote a book with Sherry Norfolk, their marriage, you know. Bobby has also written a lot of books about Anansi's life and the mischief that he gets up to. Bobby and I share a love of Anansi. You can find his books and his numerous CDs on Amazon and a bunch of more stuff on his website, bobbynorfolk.com. Go and visit him there and on Facebook and on Instagram and you'll find out what a great spirit he really is. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview certain folk and fairy tale, myth and legend storytellers, then send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree, yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use his wonderful music for my podcast. His band out in Nashville... Blackpool Mecca, you should check them out too. Again, I'd like to say thank you to all of my guests and to all of my patrons. You can help keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, exclusive content. This is www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you cannot do that, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would absolutely love it if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you find this episode. It helps, not just me, but it helps others find and enjoy it. 
Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are lots of other places you could be, and I appreciate this. I'd like to say a thank you to all the people who sponsor me on Patreon. Valerie Young, Tim, Tim Araneta, Ted Parkhurst, Tatiana Brainerd, Scott Moore, Ralph Chaddis, Rachel Ann Harding, Patricia Spaulding, Pat Spaulding, Marek Bennett, Lisa, Laura Packer, Kristen Langley, Cynthia Rinty, Christine Riddle, Claire Miller, and Andy Davis. Thanks so much indeed for being my Patreons. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be, and so I appreciate this greatly. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> yeah. Simon out. <laughs>